I think the worst thing was just not really vetting out a partner the right way. It's not understanding that we're on the same page, even if you have a contract in place by a lawyer. I mean, the way I always view it is, if your partner's going through a divorce, that means you're going through a divorce. If your partner owes a shit ton of money to the IRS, that means eventually you're probably gonna have to owe a lot of money to the IRS, whether you do or don't, but like it's gonna impact your investment. So there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. And you can think to yourself over time, especially in the game of real estate or like financial independence itself, you can think about all of the potential issues that you'll come across. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today I have Greg Cullen on, and this is a man who was financially free by 27 years old, a man who grew his uh, W-2 income from 42000 all the way to 350000 who's buying properties all across the country, creating systems to make them stress-free, and so much more. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, take us in. What is the craziest real estate experience you've had so far? Matt, thank you so much for letting me be here today. Thanks. Super excited. I think of there's been so many different experiences I've had with real estate, mostly good. But I think one of the craziest experiences that I had with real estate was uh, when I was doing a partner deal earlier on for a duplex, I found that there was an undermarket place that I could buy. And I ended up changing the rents from $1,000 up to $2,000 due to market rent. And the tenants were able to agree to it. But later on within that relationship, I started seeing some very peculiar uh, situations come about. Uh, for instance, the tenant was literally firing a gun in the backyard uh, in a residential neighborhood nonetheless. I remember talking to my dad on the phone one time when he was checking on a different property for me. He was just in the area. And he was telling me, he's like, hey, Greg, do you own the property? Is it two doors down? I was like, yeah. He's like, do you hear that? And he puts his phone up to the, the sky. He's like, do you hear those gunshots? And I was like, yeah. He's like, I'm going to go check it out. I was like, no, don't check it out. Right. Call the cops, figure out, like, just send them there. And so the cops ended up getting called. I actually called the tenants and couldn't get a hold of the husband. I get a hold of the wife and I was like, hey, is your husband firing a gun in the backyard? And she was like, yeah, so what? I'm like, man, just put your husband on the phone. So she gets him on the phone. I'll leave out the names, but I was like, hey, dude, um, are you firing a gun in the backyard? And he's like, yeah. I was like, are you pretending to be stupid or are you actually stupid? Right. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, it's a residential neighborhood and you're firing guns in the backyard. He's like, yeah, I've done it for the past couple of years while I've lived here. I'm like, you now have six cop cars come to your house. So I hope you don't have a warrant out for your arrest because if not, like you're going to jail today. And that relationship just continued to get more sour to the point where I had to evict them. They decided not to be paying their rent and they just kept dragging the process on. And so thankfully this was in Florida where the landlord, law, landlord laws are a little bit more in our favor, so to speak. So start to finish, it took me 16 days for the eviction mm -hmm. process, which most people are pretty shocked to hear that when you compare to other cities like Seattle, California, New York, it could take months potentially. Uh, but it was my first eviction in the books. It was a very clean eviction from what I heard from the sheriff. And it was just a very stressful time all throughout, but I made it through and that's what matters. It was a great learning experience. For sure. And 16 days, like that's incredible. 
Uh, and I love how you say, from what I've heard, like you didn't have to be there. That's absolutely fantastic. Everything was up. Now, yeah. were you not in the area or just so happy to have sheriffs and everything take care of it for you? Oh, I was in the area. Yeah. I, I had to make sure I was there. So I, I don't do any, I don't hire property managers. I do it all myself. And with the eviction, you have to make sure that you're going to be there to swap over the keys at the point in time. But when I went there, I met the sheriff. I made sure I had a clean house. He inspected the entire property for me. And he was just kind of surprised. He's like, out of all the evictions I've done, he's like, this is a very clean eviction. They didn't leave anything in the house. They didn't punch holes in the walls. Like they did a pretty good job with making sure that they got out of the house in time. They still have an eviction on their record, which is unfortunate, but it is a great learning experience regardless. It's probably the, the least fun part of real estate, but something that people need to be ready for at any point in time. Totally. You achieve financial independence at 27. That is a very young age. Like walk us through what, what did you have to do to get financially free at 27? Yeah, it's a great question. So at the age of 27, actually even peel it back a couple of years beforehand. When I graduated college as around the age of 20, probably 22, give or take, um, I realized at that point in time that I could take a job just making a pretty standard salary, get my three to 5% raises every single year, but it just wasn't in the cards for me. I didn't think that it made sense to kill myself in some of my best working years to do that when I could really control my income. So by jumping into the software sales game, it allowed me to really control that income and blow it up as much as possible. So along that time frame, I listened to bigger pockets all the time. It was a super helpful resource for me starting out. And I started realizing that people were achieving financial independence at a very early age. And I really leaned into the fire movement too. So I started buying some properties here and there. I started buying it when I was, I think initially 24, I bought my first property and I was like, oh, this is at first a little scary. But then after I got my first one, I was like, this is pretty nice. I cash flowed a couple hundred bucks and then I want to keep repeating the process. And I got to a point where I was buying it. It seemed like every six months buying a new property until I got to a point when I was 27 that I was like, this covers all of my expenses for this given year as it sits. And so I was like, I'm literally financially independent as it sits today. Now, over time, everyone's expenses go up, especially compared like the age of 27 versus like 40, everyone's expenses will go up. So I've just been pouring gas on this financial independence fire since then. My main objective is making sure that I'm able to grow this financial independence empire as big as possible and make it so that I set myself up, my family, my kids, my grandkids, whoever it could be, making sure that we have a great financial upbringing, no matter what, what it'll be. So take me into this a little bit more. I mean, you just hopped into software sales. What were you doing before that? Yeah. So before then I was in college, but I mean, all throughout, I was, I feel like I've had the sales blood in me throughout my entire life. I, I feel like I've been in sales since I was like six when I was having a lemonade stand on the side of my house. But when I was in college, I was doing some analytical work for uh, Lockheed Martin and Siemens, literally just sitting behind a desk, even in college, working 40 hours a week doing a lot of data analysis. And I am an, an, an analytical person, but it can be very boring sometimes when you know that you're capped at your income itself. And so I had to make a very pivotal decision. I was working at Siemens at the time as a financial analyst, and I saw a very clear path. I could join this company and make right around 60, $65,000 a year as a full-time W-2 employee, or I can take a leap of faith and have a $65,000 on-target earnings at an IT consulting company with a $42,000 base. 
And so for me at that time, it led me to think, if I completely shit the bed in sales, I at least have $42,000 I can live off of. But I knew that nothing would slow me down. Nothing could stop me from preventing my goals than spending all of those hours making sure that I could actually blow up my income to what it should be. And so for the past, from the age of 22 to I'm 30 now, I've just been honing my craft in the sales game. Uh, you and I talked about earlier, what does leverage hustle mean? My, my social channel. It's all about that 80-20 rule. I figured out early on that if I can really focus on the 20% of my efforts on the things that matter, that's where I'll get 80% of my income. And whether that's in sales, real estate, whatever it could be. But I had that clear path early on of saying, I could stay in this path of a capped income, making sure that I could make just X amount of money, probably wouldn't have time for a side hustle, like very stressful job, or having the ability to go into the sales side, which is still stressful, but it gives you the ability to make what could be a bunch of money with some related stress along the way too. <laughs> for sure. Now you're an analytical person and I, I view myself similarly and I'm a lover of sales. So I know we're not a common breed, but I want to unpack this a little bit. Like, tell me like, how is it that you're analytical? Because generally these two traits do not fall in the same person. No, these two traits don't generally work well in a sales environment. I have a few friends like me who are analytical in the sales game and we're all a very rare breed, which is kind of funny to think about. Um, I think most people in sales are very extroverted. They just like talking to people. I think having that analytical capability within the sales environment gives you a, a tremendous competitive edge. It allows you to think in the terms of maybe it's a CFO you're selling to or CEO, CIO, maybe it's a small business. You have to actually run the numbers because at the end of the day, especially in this economic uncertainty that we're dealing with now in 2023 and probably the next few years, what matters most is the bottom line and the top line. It's making sure that people can understand if they're gonna be paying you $1,000, what type of return will I get from that? And if I can speak that language in terms of just an analytical sense, whether it's just a business proposal, an ROI, or making sure that I can connect with people on a deeper business level, that's a tremendous advantage. And Matt, I'm sure you've probably seen the same on the sales world. Like it's, it's something that people just don't generally have, which is an exciting trait all around. I think it shapes how sales is done too. And I'm really like excited to get into this with you because I, I, I see most salespeople tend to, uh, tend to have like a affinity for understanding people's emotions and modifying their behavior. And the conversations oftentimes are a little bit lighter and so on and so forth. But with me, that's not, that's not my skill set. Like I usually can get deep with people very, very fast. And then it becomes very numbers oriented. Do you find yourself in that same way? Yeah, I think I become numbers oriented almost immediately. Um, I think earlier on, I was probably one of my friends in my millennial friend group that was talking about numbers and compensation packages or incomes when people were a little bit more hesitant about doing that. Um, I did that from a friend's perspective, but even in the sales perspective, you know, you can join a call and have some basic rapport about who you are, the weather, or, you know, do you have plans for this weekend? But that only goes so far. If I can join a call and know exactly how a business is making money, you know, who they're selling to, what that end user, what that end customer, what they use it for, or who that customer sells it to, and just having that full on enterprise mindset of, you know, making sure that you understand the numbers, that's how you differentiate as a salesperson. And that's how you differentiate in the game of life too, sometimes. I know sales is definitely a relationship-based type of environment, and you need to have that empathy and work with people to understand their situation. But at the end of the day, numbers, that's what's going to move the page for everybody. 
doesn't matter if it's sales or real estate or personal finance. If you can understand the analysis behind it, that's, that's the magic key. hundred percent. You don't have to make a lot of money to be wealthy later in life. But one thing that you did that makes it a heck of a lot easier is you went from $42,000 of income to $350,000 of income. And I'm assuming that that income increase was correlated to your ability to increase your sales skills and the opportunity with which you sold. So if you wouldn't mind taking us into like, obviously you had a desire to be in sales from a young age, but what was the exact process that you did to get to the, the skills? Yeah. So I think the process was making just a bunch of mistakes. Um, I think as much as people can say sales training is great, I think the best way to learn is by actually putting your hand on the stove and getting burnt. And so by having so many of these at-bats, uh, thankfully I was able to start at a company where they did have good training and they could show you what good and bad looked like. But I had a lot of at-bats and I think that's super helpful earlier on. If you just plop somebody into a strategic selling type of role as it sits, for, like fresh out of college, it's gonna be pretty damn hard because they need to have those experiences of those wins and most importantly, those losses. I think starting out in sales, I just got the phone slammed on me so many times. I've got, when people tell you that they'll commit and sign something that gets ripped away from you, I've had so many of those experiences and it just shapes you who you are as a person. And I think over the years, you get a little bit more mature in the sense of how you approach sales and how you approach work and life altogether. I think along the way, I would realize one of the things that I really messed up on early on was office politics. Mm. Office politics is something that I got put on a pip like three separate times at one of my first jobs, even when hitting President's Club and destroying my number, I got put on a pip because I didn't understand how to treat people within the workplace and it really threw me back. But over the years, I've really honed that craft of understanding this is how you treat people. This is how you prop people up. This is how you make your manager look good. Like just small things like that, that really make you stand out. And with that in mind, it's allowed me to keep trading up jobs almost every two years, making sure I can get some big promotions or change companies to the point where I can get as little as a 20% raise up to a hundred percent raise on what I'm working with. And I think having those skills and abilities really enhancing them over the, over a few years, that's what allows you to take those bigger leaps of faith and ultimately work those strategic deals and those strategic deals take a long time and you don't get many opportunities to get all those yeses or nos so it's important when you're starting out doesn't matter if you're in sales real estate anything else to lean into the mistakes lean into the mistakes lean into the problems and the challenges because that's where you learn how to be a master of your craft 100 percent. and so you carried the job and continue to grow in it while you're building your portfolio how do you view in today's landscape when somebody should make the decision to go full-time investing versus continuing to grow in their career? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer. And I think it's a very subjective question for everyone. Um, it's tough. I think you have to balance out what you're passionate with and then where you are on your finance journey too. Um, I can tell you for myself, I am at a point now where I have ten dollars to $12,000 in net passive income on a monthly basis, which is fantastic. But having a higher W-2 allows me to put more gas in the fire to buy more properties, to invest in multifamilies, to do whatever I really choose to do. The question of when to quit your job and go full-time, I think it's, there's an old quote. I don't know if it's Steve Jobs or someone else, but you need to ask yourself and look in the mirror every single day. Once you start having too many bad days at work and you keep telling yourself that, 
you either need to make a change completely to a different role, different company, whatever, or pursue the passion altogether. Um, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, I battle with it often myself of when do I do this full time? And I think within the next year, I probably will. It's just, you need to have a clear line of sight of saying, do I have enough fire under my ass to make this work to the point where I'm willing to live, leave my W2 and my insurance and all the benefits that come with that to make this happen and to turn what could be a 60, 100, maybe $150,000 income, whatever it is into something that could be a million dollars or it could be nothing. Like, are you willing to risk having that loss? So it's tough. I think having that safety net of having a few properties under your belt, going through some investment cycles, going through some renovations, having those losses and evictions and having the ability to scale up. I think that's a great safety net before you take that leap of faith. How has getting to 10 to 12,000 a month in, and we won't call it passive, but in net income, rental net income, how has that shifted your mindset, if at all, at work? Yeah, it's kind of a really funny experience because I think when I was 27, when I actually hit financial independence, at least in the game of sales, like we, we always say that, you know, if somebody's really desperate to make a sale, they have commission, like sales commission breath. And you could just see it on reps faces. And I was the same way for many years. Once you have that fire number and that cushion, you have a sense of, uh, I don't know if you can bleep this out, but you just have a sense of like, I don't give a shit. I don't give a fuck what happens. I want to make sure that I hit my number. And if I don't hit my number, I'm still going to have a life, which is very nice to have. Um, having that mentality change at that age where I had that ability to not give a shit was pretty impactful for me because that allowed me to just say, I will do the best I can. And either you're going to buy this or you're not going to buy it. And having that ability of saying like, you know, if, if this works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It, there's like a law of attraction. I actually closed more deals in my life at the age of 27 than almost every other year before then, because I had this, not like a too cool type of mantra, but like, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And you just have this great energy that gets put out there, a great growth mindset of making sure I will attract this and I'll make it happen. And I think as you have that financial independence in the workplace, it just further allows you to think to yourself, I don't necessarily need this job. I choose to be here because I want to. I want to be here to make this company successful and to make a lot of money. I'm not doing this because I just need the insurance or I need this W-2. I'm doing this because I want to. And having that mentality will change things in the office politically. It'll change how people view you. It'll put you at a higher status internally too, even working with customers, prospects, whoever it might be. And this is not just in sales, it's in every type of profession itself. Having that backup there, it allows you to just approach life a little bit easier, which is kind of the name of the game. Let's talk about disclosure here uh, on various levels. Do, do your coworkers, does your boss, do your prospects, like when your prospects are kind of waffling and, and you know, you're saying, hey, either way, are you kind of letting them know like, hey, I don't have to make any more money in my life. So either way, like how and when are you disclosing your, your status? Yeah, pretty early on for all my prospects. <laughs> yeah. um, I think for my prospect conversations when I'm going to these, I'll always joke around and I'll say, I'm the best slash worst salesperson that you'll ever meet. I'm the best one because I'll connect with you. And if it makes sense, I'm going to build the best business case you'll ever see. I'm also the worst one because I'm going to show you what we have. And I'm not going to knock on your door 20 to 30 times and say, prospect, please buy this. Like, I really want you to buy this. They're either going to do it or they're not. 
and I'll follow up a handful of times if it makes sense, but I'm not desperate. I'm not chasing them down anymore. With my boss internally, I mean, in the past couple years of work, I would tell them probably once every six to eight weeks, I choose to be here. I really want to be here. I want to see this company be successful. I'm not chained to be here. Like I, I really want to be successful and I want to be a great employee and I'm going to make a lot of money for me and you, but I choose to be here because I want to. And it's a nice reminder for some people, whether it's for prospects, managers, colleagues, whoever it could be of just saying like, it, it allows you to operate on a sense of an island sometimes or a bubble. It insulates you from some of the potentially bad things that can happen to people when you get so sucked into office politics or if you really need this job, it can come and bite you, unfortunately. And by those, do you mean things like being micromanaged? You know, you're going to have to come in on the weekend. Yep. It could be micromanaged, coming in the weekend, doing extra calls, maybe doing extra work, picking up extra stuff just because you're available. Um, it could be just a whole plethora of things. It could be someone knowing that you really need this job. So they might pass you up for promotion because they know that you're a type A worker who's going to keep doing well versus somebody who's a middle of the road worker, maybe promote them because they're not as successful. And by having something like that, it, it really hurts you as an employee because you're not able to always push back and say, this, this isn't fair. This isn't fair because of X, Y, and Z. I don't appreciate this and this needs to get solved. And it's not you being combative. It's you just standing up for yourself and having the ability to stand up for yourself as an employee you'd be surprised that that actually pushes you further in the fire journey by making sure that you don't take crap always. It's fine to take some crap, but as you get older and move up in the workforce, you take less crap, you stand up for yourself, and then you keep moving up that bracket too. Yeah, and it sounds like in your case, even it comes down to getting more likely to be promoted because if they're looking at you and they're like, man, we really want Greg to be with us, but if we don't keep increasing... Yeah, it becomes like this spiral, upward spiral for you. Yep. I mean, I'm sure you've probably seen the movie Office Space. Yes. Um, I think exactly like that. And I, it's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Like the fact that somebody who just cares so much about work and you have the consultants coming in. I mean, that's a very realistic thing, especially in this economy right now. And the people who might potentially care less and might do a minimal job, but the folks who just stand up for themselves and kind of detach themselves. I mean, it's definitely a, a comedy, this entire movie, but it's funny to watch it, not just because of the jokes they make, but like in real life interactions, how accurate something like this is. How sadly true it can be. Um, absolutely. So you have built a portfolio in Orlando and in Austin, and obviously you're not living in both of those places at the same time. So if you could walk us through, how did you build a portfolio that runs rather smoothly? Yeah. I'll also add to that. I also own one other property, Maui. Oh, so right on. it's all across the United States. So your question is, how do I run this so smoothly? I think the best way is by having systems in place. So by acquiring these properties, I did it in probably, it wasn't an unconventional method, but I lived in Florida originally. And I knew some of the cities that I was investing in, like the back of my hand, I grew up in some of these places. And then as I was moving to say Houston, Austin, I was living in Texas for some time. I found buying opportunities and I'd buy these properties when I was living in Texas, I'd manage the whole renovation. I'd manage getting the right tenants in there, getting the right systems in place for when those renewals came up too. all very important things to keep in mind. Now in Austin, I lived there for a couple of years too. I bought a duplex and I bought a different house. 
while in Austin, I also bought a condo in Maui that I Airbnb out with one of my best friends too. So I think there's so many different ways to get started in real estate. I did kind of a, a different approach. I didn't house hack at the beginning. I literally just started buying investment properties in a different state completely. And I was managing things from afar with general contractors. And now that I'm back in Florida, I can manage things pretty easily. But I also need to ask myself, is it worth me driving 30 to 45 minutes to see these properties? Or can I just send someone out there? And that's generally the debate. And that's some of the, like, the, some of the biggest bright sides of investing out of state, where it forces you to find local help and you can optimize your time better. Um, to this day, I run a really lean system across the board with all my rentals to the point where I run a 0% vacancy for all of them. And the way that I do that is I get a great tenant in place for all of them. I really make sure I scope them out, make sure they're highly qualified from a background, credit check. I also make sure that I want to, I want to see them stay in that house for a couple of years. If they want to sign a one-year contract, great. Uh, that's generally what I do for all of them. But I want to hear them say, like, we've moved a lot. We want to stay here for the next two to five years. That's kind of the goal. For some of my properties, I've had tenants in there literally for the past four or five years. One of them asked to sign like a 10-year lease with me which is great, it's just complete security. But for the ones that don't, I build within the lease itself a clause that says within 60 days of renewal, we need to put in writing if you're gonna renew or not. Now, 60 days beforehand, if they say no, I'm immediately listing this on Zillow, like that day. And I'm showing the property nonstop while they're in the house, very respectively, I'm not doing it like four or five days a week, but I'm making sure I pre-qualify some people on the phone and then show those properties so the point where I have a rental coming up at the end of this month, the next day I have a tenant moving into it. I literally have a almost same day turnaround with cleaners and then having the people go into it, which is pretty nice. That's incredible. And, and so you're essentially really preempting and causing these tenants to forecast their plans. Otherwise they face some of this inconvenience. Um, Definitely. Yeah. What, what gave you that idea? Um, I think that idea came from the sales world, honestly, when you're managing some of these bigger renewals and it can be a giant pain in the ass. Um, at one of my past companies, we'd call them ask at nineties, AA nineties, which interesting kind of acronym. Um, but it was always 90 days from the renewal. We'd ask for them to renew at this, at that point in time. And so I got the idea from that. I would have liked to make some of these leases 90 days in advance, but I just think that's such a long time. Even if someone tells me no 90 days in advance, it's probably a little bit too much time to start listing a property. I think 60 days is kind of the sweet spot. And the thing I think that most people do in real estate is they treat their tenants sometimes just not well. I mean, you might have slumlords treating these tenants pretty poorly. You might have people delegating the work to a property manager who might not do a great job with them. I'll probably get some slack in the comments of how I approach this, but across all my rentals, I'm on a first name basis with all of my tenants. And I like that. I like having the control. I like being a landlord because I like calling them once every six to eight weeks, catching up, seeing how things are going, being their friend, but also seeing if there's anything going on in the property, if there's anything good, bad, ugly, whatever. It lets me stay close to the ground and allows me to build a deeper relationship with these tenants who in turn will take better care of these homes too. Totally. How do you balance the soft side of landlord and the, and the, you know, responsible side, let's say a lot of landlords I see go into it. They're like super kind. They want to bake them brownies and, 
Next thing you know, that tenant's running all over them. How do, how do you create that balance? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think when I was starting out, there were a lot of people who were like, you know, when you get a new tenant in place, send them, send them a bouquet of flowers or send them some chocolates or send them like a Home Depot gift card and do that for their renewals. Send, send them gift cards for their birthdays. And it's like, no, we're not necessarily their friends. This is a professional relationship. So it's having that ability of still being cordial and very nice to them and having a friendly relationship to the point where I'm, I'm okay even going with one of my tenants and grabbing a beer like I did a couple weeks ago. Great guy, got to learn him a little bit more. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. Now on the other side, you have to know this is your livelihood. This is your investment. This is your financial independence. So when shit does hit the fan, like those tenants who were firing a gun in the backyard, who are being combative with me, both verbally and a little bit physically, uh, and then everything else that comes with it too, you need to make sure this is your investment. You need to protect your investment. This is your livelihood, whether you have a W-2 or not, like this is your name on the contract, on the mortgage itself. You have to make sure that you protect that. And so generally you don't want to operate out of a sense of being an asshole, but sometimes you need to embrace that inner asshole to make sure that you protect that investment and grow it. The people who are great, you know, the cream will rise to the crop. Your cream will rise to the top, whatever the saying is. I don't know. It's been a long day. Anyways, the right folks will stay there and get attracted to the property and they will renew. The bad ones, just get them out as soon as you possibly can. 100%. And that's why it's great having a solid lease where, you know, they might be doing something potentially bad. They might have an inoperable vehicle on the property. They might be smoking the property where you have a no smoking clause. You might have certain things in the lease that protect you as an owner. Could be AC filters, could be right of entry, could be anything. It's making sure that you protect that at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, it's almost similar to hiring philosophies, right? Hire slow, fire fast type of scenario. Make sure you yep. have your paperwork in order. So you have the leverage hustle. Obviously you have a desire to help people grow. Talk about like, what are your coaching points? Like when you want to help people do the right things, what's your main message? Yeah. When I want people to do the right things, I think the probably the most important thing is figuring out what they want to achieve and how long they want to achieve it. I think there's some folks out there who are saying, I want to become a millionaire as soon as possible. And I think everyone does. Mm -hmm. And that's an awesome goal to have. Um, I think the problem that I see with a lot of folks is so many people think they want to achieve these big dreams in such a short amount of time. And what I think folks forget about with financial independence and with real estate in general is this is a journey. This is a marathon. And as much as you can think that you can sprint a marathon, you're not going to be able to. Like sometimes you will, but you want to make sure you can go slow so you don't burn yourself out. So when I'm looking at potentially coaching points for people, it's understanding what they want to achieve, how they want to achieve it. It's seeing what those timelines look like, but more so it's like, what's the fire that they have? How bad do they want to achieve something like this? Because there's going to be people out there that will just doom scroll on their phones and they can see some of the content that I'm posting, that you're posting, anybody. And that's fine. I'd like helping people regardless, but I want to see people go from good to great. And the only way you can do that is by having that fire in your belly of like, I need this or else I will be completely like, I'm a failure. And I think having that very cynical, like binary, like either success or failure it's not healthy. I know that for sure. Like this is coming from somebody who has that same type of mantra, but when you have the ability of saying this has to work, I need to make this work. I'm going to dedicate myself to 
hours a day to reviewing these resources, to analyzing properties, to managing my budget, getting better paying jobs, whatever it could be, that fire is what allows you to actually achieve fire, you know? 100%. I like how you put that. And then you connect the desire or the fire to maybe like an identity that they have. So as you're conversing with these people, how much is that a conscious, like legit question that you're asking, like to figure out, okay, what part of their identity are they attaching this goal to? Yeah. Are you saying in a sense of like, um, like understanding their bigger drive behind it? Sure. Exactly. Like, you know, I think the example you were basically giving was like failure is going to attach to their identity and that's not going to be acceptable. And therefore that propels them. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely tough to see where people are at on that journey. Um, as I talk to people, it's more or less just understanding where they've been and why they're so pissed off sometimes. I mean, people might not be pissed off. People might just want to be like, I want to get in real estate investing. And I've had a great childhood. I've had great, you know, great schooling. I have great income. Let's jump into it. And that's totally cool. I, I appreciate that. There's other people who are saying like, I grew up with a chip on my shoulder. I grew up with free and reduced lunch stamps, like food stamps, whatever it could be. Like, I want to break out of this mold. I want to be the first person in my family to achieve this. And by understanding some of the background, whether it's through some of the key pivotal years between the ages of like seven to 12, or by understanding today, it's like, they might be saying, Hey, I have two kids and another on the way. I need to make this work. I have to make this work because my job's only paying me 60 or 80,000 a year. Like I need to get into house hacking, show me how to do this so I can live for free. And sometimes just some of those conversations, you can just see that fire of people not willing to accept defeat because they can't, whether it's from, you know, children, whether it's from aging parents, whether it's from other crippling debt, maybe they made some really bad choices in their early twenties. Like, you know, this is a safe space. We all have done that, but it's making sure that someone really knows like why they're fighting for this. If you have that concrete plan of why I'm fighting for financial independence and look at that every single day, that's, what's going to push you. I think when I started out early in my career, I had a picture of one of the old houses that I lived in. This is when I was in high school and my parents had to give up this house. And it was a very, very sad day for me. This house was a beautiful, beautiful one. It overlooked the lake. I had so many great times with, you know, my parents, I had great times with my dog at the time. Like it was, it was an awesome place to be. And I used that as a concert reminder of saying, I can't let this happen to me ever again. Hmm. I don't want to leave a tarnish mark, whether it's for me or for others looking back and just feeling bad that they couldn't do more. And so I think having that internal ability of saying like, I want more, I want to achieve more. And this is what, how, this is what, and how I'm going to do it. I think that's what I generally look for. And that's cause that's what I use myself. Well, now that you've reached financial independence, does that goal still motivate you? You know, that's a great existential question. Um, you know, I think starting out with financial independence, the main thing is covering the bills. It's making sure that you have the food on the table, cover all your expenses. As you get further down the fire journey, what I call could be chubby fire or fat fire. Like there's a lot of subreddits on this. As you start getting more into the chubby or fat fire range, it's more or less making sure that you can quit your job as soon as you want, if you want to, 
because there's like that quote in succession that like $5 million is nothing anymore. Um, and that's kind of true with inflation. So I think it's a different type of perspective. It's instead of having that angst or that chip on your shoulder, of I want more, I want to achieve this. I will never let this happen again. It's once you achieve that level one part of fire, it's saying, what can I do more at this stage for me? It's I've already accomplished this, which is great. I want to bring my friends up with me because I, I joke around with my friends all the time about this. Like it's going to be fun to be super rich and wealthy, but it's not going to be fun if you don't have people to share that time and experience with. So that's why like for my Maui condo, I went 50, 50 into this with one of my best buddies that I've known for 15 years. And it was one of the best partnerships I could have done. And we're making a fantastic amount of money. And it makes me so happy to see him rise up with the tides because that's my goal. And same for all my other friends too. If and when I get the opportunity to, if it's like doing a partnership deal or helping them manage their money, or if they hit it big on some crypto investment, whatever it's going to be like, that is really what I'm going for at this stage, probably for the next five, 10 years. I want the tide to rise for everyone because if everyone can be sipping on Bahama Mamas at the beach with me at the age of 35 or 40 with no care in the world, that's, that, that's kind of the goal right now. Now I'm saying that kind of tongue in cheek at the age of 35, 40, we not, might not be drinking Bahama Mamas at the beach. We might be drinking Bahama Mamas at like a softball practice right. or something like that. Right. Who knows with what it kids. could be, but yep. yeah, with our kids and that's totally fine. But it's having that ability to that time freedom, not only for yourself, but for your friends and for your family to actually enjoy life. Um, you know, it's, I had a death in the family last year. Mm -hmm. So you realize life is very finite as it is. And I think even having that, that death in the family, it's a complete gut punch, but it allows you to realize life is very finite. What you do is finite where you invest your time, your energy, your money. We're not on this earth for long. We could be on this earth for 70, 80 years. We could also be here for the next eight hours. And it's a very, uh, some might say like pessimistic approach of looking at it, but it's also very realistic. It's making sure that everything you do has a purpose. Even if you want to go out and have all these adventures, that's important with your friends, whatever. Or if you want to just be horizontal, sit on the couch and watch, watch Netflix, be purposeful that you want to do that. And I think having that existential crisis of, you know, we're only on this earth for X amount of years, X amount of time, it allows you to think a little bit differently and a little bit more purposefully as well. hundred percent. And it really is, it's the integration of the long and short-term goals so that you don't lose one or the other. So I'm curious, you started to help your friends and that could be a real double-edged thing. I mean, like, because you can't necessarily force people into financial independence. So you've given some home run stories. Have you had any of the opposite where you went to help a friend and it's like really backfired? Yeah, a thousand percent. Um, I've done this as minimal as like coaching segments where people, you know, they don't really get the value out of it and they fall flat in their face. But kind of the biggest one was when I did a, a separate partnership deal and I lined up everything very well to the point where I gave my partner a 14% cash and cash return. All he was, was the money investor. I did everything else. I found the property, renovated the property, dealt with tenants, dealt with any type of issues that came about, uh, dealt with the good, bad, and ugly while he collected his mailbox money. The problem was I didn't really 
vet him out as a true partner at the end of the day. So it hurt me because I didn't understand his financial position at the time, which he ended up, I later ended up finding out that he had a larger liability that he had to pay for to the IRS, which was unfortunate. Uh, and he's a great guy at the end of the day, but it's something that I should have probably understood a little bit more about of what does that financial picture look like? Where does he want to be in the next five, 10 years? Uh, how can I grow with him? How can we grow this into a slow but sure, surely empire? Um, the problem with working with some partners who get a lot of money very fast is like when you win the lottery, folks who win the lottery will just blow their cash immediately. They don't have the right financial like disciplines in place. This partnership, you know, one could say objectively failed. I subjectively take it as a lesson learned. Um, I remember at the point in time, my late father a couple of years ago told me, you know, you want to make sure that don't do partnership deals, just do it yourself. So you have full control and you know how to manage these investments. And I follow that very true. And I started dabbling in partnership deals. And that first one was a little iffy. The second one was even better. And I look back and I'm like, if I would have done partnership deals for the past five years, I probably would have had instead of 10 to 12,000 in net passive income a month, I probably would have had closer to about 20 to 30 realistically with the amount of deals that I've come across that I've passed over. So I think the worst thing was just not really vetting out a partner the right way. It's not understanding that we're on the same page. Even if you have a contract in place by a lawyer, I mean, the way I always view it is if your partner is going through a divorce, that means you're going through a divorce. If your partner owes a shit ton of money to the IRS, that means eventually you're probably gonna have to owe a lot of money to the IRS, whether you do or don't, but like it's gonna impact your investment. So there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. And you can think to yourself over time, especially in the game of real estate or like financial independence itself, you can think about all of the potential issues that you'll come across. You can think about the evictions you have to deal with. You can deal with the bad partners. You can deal with renovations that go over budget or they're overrun or anything like that. And the way that I like approaching these type of things is that I'm grateful for these challenges and I'm grateful for the mistakes that I have made because these type of mistakes and challenges, I know not many people have that experience to do something like this. So it's, it's kind of like checking yourself before you start like bitching, complaining to anyone of saying like, I signed up for this, I'm going to finish this and it, it's a good problem to have and I'll get through it. Yeah. And so now you've come full circle and, and I think a lot of people like in our parents' generation were anti-partnership. So now your view is partner, as long as you've truly vetted, partnering is great. Yeah. I think at this point I'm, I'm not like a hundred percent, like let's do a partner deal on everything, but on the same token, I want my friends to be making money with me. And I think that's, I don't know. I, I look at like someone like Warren Buffett, who at one point was so successful on his own that he had friends and family coming up to him saying, you know what you're doing? Can you please manage my money? And I think that's what happens to a lot of people, especially in the real estate game, where you get to a point where you have a great reputation, you have great credibility, and you've proven yourself, and you have people wanting to do that. So while I can buy one to three properties a year on my own, it's sometimes more beneficial to do that with friends and family. Now, again, we're probably gonna get a lot of slack in the comments of people saying, don't do business with friends and family. 
uh, I totally agree with that. And you should probably vet out your friends and family to do it with first, even family. I come from a family where I did a lot of business with my dad. He used my credit for a lot of stuff. You know, I helped him with some things here and there. Um, I would be buying a deal with him if I could. Same with some of my friends. Like I'm happy to do deal with a friend. Dude, I'm happy to do deals with friends that I trust. And those friends that I know that are going to be around for the next 20 to 30 years, I'm totally game for something like that. It's the friends who haven't proven themselves or who might lack some of the loyalty that, or just questionable behavior. Those are the folks that I just stay far away from, from an investment perspective. Correct. Yeah. Because you could have a great friendship with someone and just, you're not compatible on business. Like you, you have great conversations, have a beer together. All of that's great. But the second money comes up, they go in a completely different thought direction than you do. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of power in partnerships when done correctly. And I think for this year, moving forward, like I do want to make sure that my friends rise up with the tide for me. So do, you know, buyer beware, do your own due diligence for the folks listening. But I think there is a lot of power behind it, especially when you're doing some like partnerships, when it's getting good and you're making a lot of money. It's really exciting when you see the bank account just kind of go up, go up, go up. And it's also pretty helpful when shit goes wrong in some of these like investments, whether it's real estate or anything else. I had this condo in Maui, or I still have this condo in Maui that we dealt with a major water main busted in the condo itself. And I got to tell you, I was pulling my hair out. I, I, if the folks are listening to this podcast, just envision an Italian person with good black hair. Mm. And I had clumps of this thing pulling out my beard. I have like straight up gray hair, in my beard here too. And it was all from that like renovation gone wrong and it happens, but having someone to do that with having someone in the trenches with you when it's good and bad, it makes it a little bit better. And it makes it so you don't want to pull your hair out every single day. Right. And at least if you do pull your hair out, you have someone to talk to about it, which exactly. Yeah. Then you're both bald. Exactly. And when people are making fun of you for being bald, you got a, you got a friend in the misery. Yeah. Great. Exactly. Thank you so much, man, for sharing about your life and your business. I appreciate you so much. And for those out there listening, write something down, whether it be, how do you navigate, right? Working a job. How do you build skill sets? How do you think about partnering with friends? There's so many things we talked about today that could be a benefit to you in your investing journey. So write down something that you take note of, share it with somebody you know, so they can hold you accountable because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day, before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.